Do you know the risk factors for type 2 diabetes? Or what makes it more likely you or someone in your life might have the disease? With type 2 diabetes playing a growing role in the lives of so many, you need to know. And Project Power, a community program from the American Diabetes Association, is here to help. Take our risk test today at diabetes.org slash Project Power. You can avoid the risk of type 2. Project Power will help. For the love of fall, Starbucks pumpkin spice lattes and pumpkin cream cold brews are back. Smooth espresso dashed with pumpkin pie spice and velvety whipped cream. Or cold brew topped with pumpkin cream cold foam fit for the season. Your pumpkin awaits. Order today in the Starbucks app. It's grown on me that waiting can make you almost one with the fish. Feeling a living thing on the end of your line. Dealing with that one-on-one, that feeling. Waiting is a big deal. It takes you to wonderful places, and I think that's true of trout fishing, perhaps more so than fishing for other species. I mean, the places where we find trout are, are beautiful. I guide, so I see a lot of clients, you know, and, and I'd say, like, one of the biggest skills to have as an angler is to understand where fish are going to be depending on the type of water you have. The Oshawa is a river for young people which as you know pretty tough waiting yeah definitely (laughs) now women are the fastest growing part of fly fishing and it's just become just this huge thing and it's great you know and uh very exciting i mean uh lots of women's only clubs i'm not really sure where i stand on that sometimes i i feel like fly fishing is a sport that's very uh level as far as ability you don't need to be stronger in fact women are in my experience as being a teacher are generally better because they're not trying to muscle it or whatnot it's a finesse sport but uh but it's really cool to see a lot of younger women involved the clips you just heard were from the new documentary land of little rivers by aaron weisblatt Aaron and I had a wonderful time taking a deep dive into what it means to make a documentary, how filmmaking has influenced his life, and how uh, we share many similar pathways, especially with how our fathers influenced us and our passion for film and for movies. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Aaron and I, which is rich, beautiful, simple, Uh, and also elegant. Uh, I'm glad to know Aaron, and I'm excited to grow a friendship with him. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Weisblatt. Well, one of the things is I love artists in all different capacities, and film has been a large part of my life, like many people, I think, growing up watching movies, and now especially documentaries. I would love to kind of just start to understand how that became a large part of your life. Sure. Um, Almost accidentally, when I look back on it, I was, I always knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was uh, a young teenager. And um, I went to New York University's uh, film school. And 
I really didn't have a vocabulary for film at the time. I was really learning so much about it, even though I, I loved films growing up. And um, I, I felt like I didn't really have anything to say at the time, and I needed to do a uh, kind of a thesis film. And uh, I, I, I always loved documentaries, so I got into this class with a professor named George Stoney, who uh, is a renowned professor at NYU. Unfortunately, he passed away a number of years ago. But um, uh, I needed, I wanted, I wanted to make a documentary, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And a friend of mine, back in my little hometown of Walden, New York. His name is Richard Phelps. Um, his father was was a really unique man, and and Richard said at one point, well, "Why don't you make a documentary about my father?" And um, that's how it all started. I I met with his father, who's uh, his name is Sam Phelps, and and he was a farmer, and uh, he he rebuilt pre-revolutionary homes, and he was a woodworker, and he just was and a writer and uh, a conservationist. And I just found him to be fascinating. And uh, I decided to make a film about Sam. And um, that was my thesis project. That's how I really got started into the art form of making documentaries. Um, I have to owe it to George Stoney, my professor, because that class was really instrumental in, in launching my career as a documentary filmmaker. Um, I learned a lot in that class. So uh, that was the beginning. And that film, um, when I finished it, I, I graduated NYU. And, and um, I finished it a couple years later. And it was nominated. I was able to uh, submit it uh, for a Student Academy Award. And it, and it, and it, and it won a Merit Student Academy Award. And um, it then became eligible to be submitted for a real Academy Award. So I did that, and the following year it was nominated in 1987. So that little film, which was only a 21-minute short documentary, really uh, did some things. It was really surprising and uh, very, very for fortunate for me that, that um, it was nominated. Um, I do want to say one thing that kind of prefaces all of this story is that the way I got interested in film was that um, we had a family friend named Craig McKay, who at the time, he was he's older than I am, probably about 10 years of age, and we were very close family friends with his parents. And Craig was living in New York at the time, and he was working on The Exorcist as a assistant editor. And during uh, several uh, family dinners that we would have during the holidays with his family, he would talk about his experience working in the cutting room on that film. And I was just absolutely amazed at, and, uh, at the stories he told. And um, that really piqued my interest. I, I knew at that point, I was like 15, 16, I said, that's what I want to do. That's the industry I want to be involved in. And Craig was instrumental in helping me get into the business after I graduated. He was, and he was the one that told me, uh, if you want to, if you want to 
become a filmmaker, you've got to go to either New York University or UCLA. So I, um, I was living in a little town in upstate New York, and I love I loved the city. And so I just immediately wanted to go to NYU. And that's, that's how it all started. That's awesome. I think that um, it's interesting. I, you know, NYU or UCLA, was it because those were just kind of the kind of the epicenters of filmmaking at that point? And I would love for you to talk about how that is now. And do you have to be in those places generally to become a successful filmmaker? Well, back then in the 80s, those were the two main schools, and they probably still are today. But there weren't a lot of uh, filmmaking programs in a college environment at that time. Uh, so the, those, those two schools were, were really the ones that you wanted to go to, USC as well. I know a lot of um, filmmakers that became quite famous came out of U- USC. I, I think that Spielberg and, uh, and Lucas went to USC. I, I may be wrong about that. Okay. But, um, but today there are film schools everywhere. Every college has a film program and, um, you know, it's, you obviously when you go to college, you want to go to the best one that you can go to. And, and the people that are, that you'll be going to school with are the ones you're going to be working with afterwards. So, um, what makes a good film school? Like what is the, maybe the components of it that creates a special environment for a student to flourish in that industry? Well, from my, from my experience, and, and I only can speak about my time at NYU, um, the classes that I found to be the most valuable were the ones that treated you like a professional. I remember we had a sound editing class, and the professor was a guy named J.J. Linsalata. And um, I remember it, that class made a huge impact on me because one of the first things that he did is he he ran a scene from The Godfather without any sound first. And it was oh, that wow. scene when Michael Corleone goes into the bathroom and gets the gun and then comes oh, out. Oh, I love and, that scene. Yeah. So we watched that without any sound. And then we watched it again with sound. And that you know blew my mind to, to understand how effective sound editing and sound design can be in creating an emotional impact in the scene. And I think that also J.J. Linsalata, the professor, was a working prof- professional. He was a producer, and, um, and he would come in at night and give that class on sound editing. But during the day, he was out making commercials and promotional films. Um, I think that the fact that he, that he was a, a real professional made a, made a big difference. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, versus someone who's just providing you maybe um, theory related exactly. to it, right? Exactly. Then actual working in the field, and then can apply that to the you know talk to the students about it. Right, that's amazing. The, the other thing that NYU had at that time was that there was no digital video. We shot on film, so learning how to f- use film in a very uh, uh, concise way, because you only had 10 minutes on a film roll. So you 
it's not like today where you can shoot hours and hours of video. You had to be very precise about what you were shooting. And also the post-production aspect of working in a film. We got to learn how to actually edit the film itself and use the film editing machines. And back then, I may sound just like an old guy who's <laughs> a little bitter, but I'm not really bitter. But I just think that learning how coming from that era and learning how the mechanics of, of the actual film and sound worked together through submitting it to a lab, picking it up at the lab, uh, coding, you, you had to hand code the, uh, the sound so that it matched the picture. There was just this incredible amount of work and technique that you had to learn. And I don't think, um, you know, kids going to school these days ever get a chance to do that. Not that that doesn't make them any less of a filmmaker, but having that background has, has been incredibly valuable in my career as I went on. Does it seem like you know more, you were able to understand maybe all the components that go into it a little bit more in depth and be able to speak to it in the whole process? Exactly, exactly. And you know, I started out after school working as a apprentice picture editor and eventually became an assistant picture editor. And at that point, we were still cutting on film. And um, you just cannot believe the difference between that work and the work that people do now using digital video. It's a completely different world. Hmm. We had uh, one of the things was there took a lot more people to do it. Uh, there was... I remember, you know, as a sound editor or an assistant sound editor, you used to have a rack in a room that would go from floor to ceiling that had all the elements on individual metal reels for every soundtrack. And you had to bring those, box those up and bring them to the mix studio where it would, where the sound would be mixed after the film was edited. And they would have these this giant room full of these machines where they would load each one of these reels onto a single machine. There might be 20, 30, 40 of these, and they'd all have to be, each reel would have to be put in sync. And then all the machines would lock up together and everything would run in sync. So you can imagine the amount of, of work that it took to, to make all of that happen, where all of that now happens inside of a laptop. It reminds me of music now and how artists and a long time ago, like it was, you know, if they want the song to actually come out right. It was like they had to play it all the way through and there was no yeah. cutting and pasting, you know, it was, um, I mean, I, I think like I remember hearing about Stevie Wonder, I think superstition and all that, you know, like they did that in one take, yeah. <laughs> like, and now it's just, you know computer stuff they cut and paste things and you don't even have right. to be in the same place as the other person you know? right the same thing happened in the film industry for a long time you were when when you were mixing a movie you had to go from the beginning to the end you couldn't oh stop my gosh but then they created uh, a mechanism in the control surface where you could stop it and go backwards and it was called rock and roll at that point um and that gave you the ability to punch in and punch out and fix things. And, you know, so pretty analogous to the, to the music world. It is. Uh, it, it's amazing. Now, as I think about your, 
um, your first documentary. What was that like? I always think I like to ask people just thinking about the first time they do a project, they're a seasoned veteran and something like the first time they did something. What was that process like making that first documentary? Ah, well, it was, first of all, a lot of fun because I was on a farm filming a farmer with a small crew from NYU during the summer and beautiful weather. And it was just so easy to do, you know, it was, it was like an adventure. We'd go up and stay at my mom's house on the weekends, my crew. I had a cameraman, a sound man and a producer and, and uh, it was just such a lovely experience. After we finished the production end of it, the post-production took a long time. Editing um, is something where you, in documentary, you really build a story. You might go into the field filming one story and come out with something quite different after you've spent time editing it. So you really find the story in post-production a lot of times. and so it took me, a, I don't know whether it was because it was my first film, but it took me a couple of years to really uh, finalize the movie. Um, and of course, there were times when I wasn't working on it. Um, and after I graduated, I, I, I uh, really didn't have access to the film equipment any longer. So I would have to rent uh, an ed- editing room. And um, I was really fortunate in living in New York at the time, I was able to rent from some really esteemed filmmakers. Uh, one of the rooms I rented was Barbara Koppel's editing room. She's uh, an Academy Award winning documentary filmmaker. And I also rented, uh, I became friends with Errol Morris and, and worked up at his uh, office, renting his um, editing machine. And um, Errol made a groundbreaking documentary called The Thin Blue Line. And at the time I was, I was renting his room at night. And one of the cool things about being there at that time was that he uh, was just completing The Thin Blue Line and his editor, Paul Barnes, had to move on to a ne- his next project. And Errol wanted to make a couple small changes in the movie before he printed it. So he asked me to come in and, and help him at the editing console because he really didn't know how to use it. And so I spent a day in the cutting room making changes with him in, in that movie. And uh, just being, you know, part of, of, uh, of that film was exciting. That's I don't know awesome. if you've ever seen The Thin Blue Line, but it I haven't. No, ground, I, I'm in, I love documentaries. I'm, uh, it was one of the reasons why I was pretty excited to talk to you was um, I have a lot of interest in many things. Uh, but movie making, um, and s- specifically documentaries, it just, it always pulls me in. I'm always looking for it on Netflix or Amazon prime, whatever it may be a good story. Yeah. And it makes me think you said about you go in with one thing and then you come out basically with really what the story is. <sighs> Did that surprise you when you first started working on documentaries that that's how it worked? Or were you like, I, well, this is how I, it's supposed to work. I think it surprised me um, because it's really a journey when you're in post-production on a documentary. 
you, you don't know what you're going to really uncover. You have a sense of a structure and, and style when you're shooting it, but uh, it's the magic of, of putting one shot next to another and figuring out what the narration or the dialogue is going to be and kind of just honing a message or, or, or a, a, a story point in the process that's so exciting. Do you feel like when you're doing it, like, is there, when you're shooting the documentary, like the actual shooting of it, or what's the feeling or the mindset? Are you like, wow, this is coming along really well, or like, wow, this is really different than I thought it was going to be? What Take us through that kind of thought process. Yeah. Well, it's always different from what you think it's going to be. That's been my experience. Hmm. Um, and also along the way, as you're shooting, you're, you're discovering new things that maybe you weren't expecting. Um, there are times when, when a subject tells you something that you didn't think they would tell you. Uh, for instance, I'm right now developing a documentary and I was on the phone interviewing somebody who is going to be part of it. And we we're talking about somebody and she told me that, uh, this person committed suicide and that was never in the press reports about this individual. Mm -hmm. And so that totally puts a whole different spin on on a character that you thought you knew and she told me why and how and you know you just those are just kind of the things that you learn along the way when you're interviewing people one of the things that i learned from nyu from taking that documentary class was that uh my my approach is i always try to interview somebody first on the phone before i even get to meet them right and that gives me a sense of who they are and what kind of story they're going to tell. And it also gives me a, a way to build a relationship with them. And, um, then I, and I record that interview and, and then I make a transcript of that interview and I do that with everybody. And then I, before I even start editing, I go through those transcripts and I, I kind of cut and paste, um, what they say into a form that makes sense that I try to follow throughout the film. So when I first put together a rough cut after, you know, when I'm first sitting down starting to edit a project, I have those transcripts and I go to those and I pull out those pieces of dialogue and I start to build from there. And of course, everything changes after that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How important is the relationship building with the, people that you're interviewing or you say the characters, the players in the documentary? It's super important. I mean, I, I, uh, I try to become as friendly as possible with people that I'm working with on a film because, you know, you're asking them to sometimes divulge sensitive, um, information that, and you want them to feel comfortable doing that. They, you want them to, to trust you. Uh, you want them to know that, that you're not going to do anything to harm them in any way. Um, there's one character in my, in my new film, uh, his name is Rob Lewis, and he was always a little tenuous working around me because he didn't know who I was. He had his own thoughts about 
how films should be made. Mm-hmm. But as we spent time together, he slowly trusted me. And at one point he says, okay, I give up. I'm just going to let you do what you want <laughs> there. You know, cause he, when I, when I set up an interview with him, he, he didn't know who to be. Oh, and interesting. He finally said, you know what? I just decided I'm just going to be who I am. And that took a while for him to get to that place. Do you find that's a common theme? Um, it makes me think of the projection people have on social media and then their, the projection of themselves they have in person. And sometimes I think when I watch a documentary, is this really how this person is? Or are they putting this on for the camera? You know? Well, I can talk about that in two ways. Number one, this more less complex way would be that a lot of people that I've interviewed with mainly are, are concerned with the way they look on camera. Mm. And like physically, they, aesthetically phys- type yeah, of physically. thing? Okay. Yeah, they want to make sure that they look good. And you want to, you want to make sure that they look good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want them to be comfortable. And a lot of people have never been filmed before when you're making a documentary. So there's always that moment when you first sit down and they're really nervous and uncomfortable. So you have to figure out ways to make them relax before you really get into the, <laughs> to the stuff you want to be talking about. So you, yeah. you know, you figure out what to talk about with them before everything really starts. The other part of your question is like an old, um, controversy, not controversy, but it's been talked about probably from the dawn of, of making documentaries is that when you put a camera in a room, it, definitely changes people. So you there's there was this movement called cinema verite when documentary documentaries started and that was really trying to film situations that were really honest and truthful. So they tried to they tried to be filming in uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for an un- unobtrusive way, so that the person being filmed didn't for, kind of forgot about the camera being there. Right, it was very native of, to them. Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, the Maisel brothers and D. A. Pennebaker were like the the guys that created that art form, and and they were able to to work with a very small crew, uh, mostly handheld, probably no lighting, you know, it's just to make it feel as natural as possible. Yeah. I just, it's, I think it's something that I don't know, maybe I'm, I just look for that. I'm like, how is this the real person? Does it feel authentic? And I think a lot of great documentaries I see, I feel like throughout the course of it, the people they're interviewing start getting looser lipped. They start saying more things yeah. or more revealing. Uh, it seems like they're getting more comfortable with that. Now, have you had times where people, they, they watch the documentary and they say, you know, Aaron, I, I really don't like how this makes me portrayed on this. Uh, I don't think I ever had that experience. I can say that I, 
I, I made a film uh, back in the early 2000s about a World War II fighter pilot. And when I approached him, after becoming quite friendly with him, to the point where I would go up to his house and have family meals with him and his wife, um, he, when I approached him to do a documentary, he, he said, no, I, I am totally not interested in doing that. And then one day, out of the blue, he called me and he said, you know, he was an, art, he was an artist. His name was Fred, Frederick Arnold, and he's passed away two years ago. He um, was creating a montage or a collage, a really large format collage of his experience in World War II using um, the maps that, that he brought back from North Africa. He was a fighter pilot in North Africa during the invasion of Sicily. And he had these incredible maps. And so he mounted them on a giant board and then started painting on top of it. And he called me and he said, Aaron, can you just come up and, and film a little bit of this because I want to send it off to a gallery? Um, so I said, sure. And as we were filming, I started asking him questions. And he didn't really realize what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, afterwards, after he told me some very powerful things about his experience in the war, I showed him what I did. And I said, I think maybe we could do a documentary. What, how do you feel about it? And he, he saw what, what I had filmed and he, he agreed to, to carry on, but in a very tenuous way. So that process of building a relationship actually with him took years and then after that first time filming him, it took months before we really started. He started to trust me and felt comfortable about, about the story he was going to tell, which was very emotional for him. Do you find that um, some of these documentaries are in many ways personal memoirs for the people that you're filming, that they're almost, almost legacy projects for them? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, they certainly become that, but they don't really start out that way. It's a theme yeah. here. I'm, I'm noticing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, there are companies out there that actually do legacy projects where, uh, you know, so wealthy family may want to have a, a film of the patriarch and they pay a lot of money to filmmakers to make a family profile on people. But that isn't really what I do, but in the end, it's what happens. Yeah. Um, but I try to focus more on a larger theme than just somebody's personal story. Right. So how do you pick your projects or do they pick you? I think it works both ways. The last film I made, uh, Land of Little Rivers, which is a documentary about fly fishing, I was picked to do that. It was a commissioned project. Um, and I, I knew nothing about fly fishing when I started. And I know way too much about it now <laughs> <laughs> after a couple years of, of uh, working on that project. But that was, that was something that came out of the blue. And, um, but like the project that I'm working on now is something that I, that I'm really interested in and, and 
that I've chosen to do. Uh, the same thing with the uh, World War II film that I made. Uh, that was something that I was really interested in and wanted to, to make that film. Is there a difference in the approach to being uh, sought out for one versus one that you are really like wanting to do a personal interest for that? Well, you know, when like with this last film, since I was being paid to make it, um, I had to kind of respect the executive producer's wishes. Um, and at times we, we would come to loggerheads about including a certain scene. But uh, in the end, I, I had to choose your, you know, you have to choose your battles in these situations. So um, a lot of times I was able to redirect the producer's focus and, and say, this is why we don't want to have that in the film. And other times when I felt there was something very important to him to be in the film and he was really pushing for it, then, you know, you kind of have to acquiesce a little bit as long as you don't think that it's hurting the project. Right. Do you find yourself getting really immersed into these projects, like in Land of Little Rivers and, you know, in a world and almost a completely different subculture than what you're used to, certainly what I'm used to, that you, you feel you have to get deeply immersed into that environment in order to understand it and to project that to the public? Definitely, especially with something as complicated and technical as fly fishing is, you have to really understand everything about it. You don't really need to know how to do it, but you need to understand what it, what it takes to be a fly fisherman. You have to understand the vocabulary. You have to understand how everything works in order to really make a film about it and to be able to speak intelligently to the people that you're interviewing. So, um, yeah, you, you do have to immerse yourself. You, uh, that's, that's, I learn a lot from the interviews that I do and doing reading and I got a whole bunch of books on it and mm-hmm. read, read a lot about the history of fly fishing. And, um, luckily the executive producer who hired me to make the film was an avid fly fisherman. And he taught me a lot. Uh, just uh, going out with him, exploring the area, uh, meeting his friends who eventually ended up in the movie. So yeah, you have to totally immerse yourself in in every film that you make. It was really fascinating. Like and my wife and I were watching it, and we were—I mean, I knew nothing about it. I'm talking zero <laughs> about fly fishing. I mean, never. I like going to Montana, and so I would. I love driving to Yellowstone, and we would see people fly fishing. And uh, I mean, I didn't know that's what it was at first. My wife goes, "Yeah, I grew up with that. They're they're fly fishing." I'm like, "No clue what they're doing, really, you know." But like, the some people are into the actual fly fishing. Some people are into like the more the art of it and mm-hmm. making different things. And I was like, "There's just so much going on in life. We have no clue <laughs> about." <laughs> so true. Yeah. Fly fishing is a complicated uh, sport. Uh, it can be as complicated as you want it to be. It can also be very simple. A lot of people just go out to relax and fish 
using things they buy in the store. Other people make the things that they fish with. And um, the one thing I, I have learned about fly fishing is it's an addiction. People that oh. get into it, uh, it really becomes an obsession for them. They're very passionate about it. They Many of, many of the people who, who end up that way are people who work in high-stress environments and being able to get out on the river. And this is sort of what my film is about, is, uh, is how it changes them. Um, and, and for the better, it relaxes them. And they, they're able to, to live in two, kind of two worlds in, in one life. They can do their high-stress, uh, A-personality jobs, and then on the weekends go out on the river and, and totally escape that. This was Theodore Gordon's river, and he was frail. I think he was wrestling with TB. He was a, not a large guy, came from money. Gordon was the father of American dry fly fishing. In the 1890s, through a famous correspondence with a British fly tire named Frederick Halford, he made adjustments to existing British fly patterns because American dry flies needed to float on our faster flowing freestone creeks, especially Gordon's swift home waters, the Neversink, Willowemock, and Beaverkill rivers. Gordon's most well-known pattern is the quill Gordon. He designed many versions, only one of which used a quill, but all were originally known as Gordon's. This was the start of the Catskill School of Fly Tying. Joy manifests itself at this in a lot of different ways. Did the fish come up and sniff the fly? Did he lean on the fly? Did he miss the fly? You know, you took some dead chicken feathers, let's face it, and tied them to a hook, and that wild animal, that wild creature, thought it was real so much that he, he just comes up and grabs it. I mean, or doesn't. That's still joy. That's still joy. If you look at it as if, oh, what happened there? It was bad. See, that's, that's, that's not what I'm about. As we begin to move back into the second part of the conversation between Aaron and myself, we're going to take a deeper dive into what happens behind the scenes when the camera stops rolling. And there's footage there when you're meeting with the cast and the crew and all the different characters involved in making a documentary. What's that like? What's that feeling? Can you exist in a different reality than the one that you're filming? And how does that manifest itself? So, open your ears, open your heart, and check out part two of our conversation. Um, maybe interviewing people, and you're having discussions about those interviews with the people you interviewed, kind of the behind-the-scenes or off-camera conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the case. Uh, thinking back on, on those moments. Sure. Yeah. You, you know, you'll sit down and have dinner with the subject that you've just spent the afternoon filming and, and the, the topic of what, what you did that day comes up and either they'll say, Oh, I wish I had included that when we talked or, mm -hmm. 
or I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's that's definitely an experience we have. Do you find that of, those moments are like you're like, man, th- this is good too. Like this is good stuff. What we're experiencing over oh, dinner, yeah. you know? Yeah, that totally happens when somebody tells you that the one thing that you wish you had on film, but mm. but and then sometimes if it's important enough, you say you know what? I think we should do another session. (laughs) Let's meet tomorrow. I want to, I want to, I want you to talk about that. That happens for sure. Wonderful. What is your, um, I'm curious about what was your most challenging project that you worked on and why? Well, they're all challenging in their own way. I find the editing process to be the most challenging on every film I've made because you're, as I said earlier, you're building the story, you're, you're entering a, an adventure, a journey, and, and you don't know how it's going to come out. And sometimes it takes a lot longer than you think it, it will. And everything changes. Uh, but, um, I think overall, this last movie land of little rivers was one of the most challenging experiences on so many different levels. Number one, I was dealing with a producer who was, uh, shall we say, uh, interesting, uh, (laughs) interesting personality. Okay. Uh, we've become good friends since we started. Um, but he's a character and learning how to, work with somebody who I originally thought would be really unmanageable was something that was a good learning lesson for me, challenging. Um, the other part of, of that film is the challenge of how do you film people fishing from boats on a river, which I'd never done before. Yeah. So that was challenging to figure out, okay, how many boats do we need? Where's the cameraman going to be? How do we get picked up at the end of the day after we've traveled 12, 15 miles down a river? You know, those sort of logistic things Mm -hmm. were very challenging for that. Um, Also, uh, entering a world that I really had never experienced before was quite challenging. Um, You know, the world of fly fishing, it's a sport. I I didn't know a thing about it when I started. So uh, every day sort of was a new adventure when we were shooting. Yeah. It sounds like that. It almost sounds like you're taking a course in a sense and that you're stepping into a world completely kind of naked about it. And you're having to start the, you're getting a syllabus of like, okay, this is fly fishing one-on-one. Here's the different things you're going to learn. But then you're actually shooting it and making a feature about it. And it sounds daunting actually on some level. It is, but you know, that's the beauty of making documentaries is, is the learning process, being able to enter a world that you never really probably would have been able to go into for one reason or another and, uh, learning, learning a lot about it. I can give you, um, one, one, uh, incident that happened. Um, I, Bruce, the executive producer would constantly talk about the bugs on the river and the hatches that happened. And I didn't know really what he was, I'd never seen anything like that. And the first 
three or four times we went out on the river. The, it was very sunny and bright, and bugs don't really like to hatch on days like that. But then there was one day when it was dark and rainy and the bugs hatched, and we had what's known as a blanket hatch, which was where the bugs were so thick that they covered the entire river and the air. Oh. And that was amazing. And to give you a very simplified explanation of how this works is that uh, the fish feed on flies and the flies come from underneath the water. They're nymphs. And when it's the right time of the year, these nymphs will, will hatch and they'll come up to the top of the water. They'll become a fly. They'll fly up into the sky for 24 to 48 hours. They'll mate and then they'll fall back into the water and die. And that's the life cycle of a, of a bug hatch. And the reason fly fishing is so complicated is that you want to try to match that particular hatch that day with an artificial fly that looks just like it so that the fish will take your fly thinking it's a real fly. And every hatch is different. They're all different species. They all look differently. So that's, that's part of the world that I had never really understood until I was in the middle of it. That's intense, actually. I mean, so yeah. Really, like, just different. I, you know, I think you can go your whole life and never know that information. Exactly. You know? I had no idea that that happened. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Now, was there... Is there something in mind for you that you're like an environment or a culture or whatever that you want to explore? Like you're just very passionate about getting it on film at some point. That's a good question. Um, you know, the way my mind works is I move from one project to the next and I really get deep into whatever I'm interested in. So I can't say right now that I have any particular uh, culture that I'm wanting to explore, except for the one that I'm working on now. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I find I'm really interested in pretty simple stories about human behavior. So I'm not the kind of filmmaker that's that interested in traveling to a far off land to, to, uh, film some strange subculture. I, I don't really think about it that way. It's, I'm really uh, interested in, in, I guess, America, the people that live here and the stories that they have to tell that are unique and interesting. Let me, let me say a, in a different aspect of it. Um, I'm thinking about this. Is there something you're really interested in? that you just would never put on film. It's just for you, like your personal interests. And you're like, mm, this probably is not something I'd want to put on film. Just, it's just something for me. Yeah. No, I don't think I can say that I do. Interesting. Anything I'm, I'm interested in, I would want to film. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you never know. Sometimes people are like, well, you know, this is just, I don't know. I sometimes, maybe that's just my own bias. It's, it's kind of like, 
I compare it to kind of picture taking. Sometimes people take pictures of literally everything. Yeah. And like I was watching my daughter ride her bike the other day in the cul-de-sac and the sun's out and it's beautiful. And it's kind of getting towards evening time. And I had this thought process of, I want to go get my camera to take a picture of her or video her. And then I thought, no, I just want that for my, I want that image or that video yeah. just for my own mind. I only want to remember it. I don't want other people to remember sure. it. Just me. Sure. I don't know. It's the thought I had, you know? No, I, I understand that. I know like when I, when I'm out in the world and I see people taking pictures, I just think, you know, I just want to experience this. I don't want to worry about pulling my camera out and filming this. But I, I will say there there are subjects that I'm fascinated with that I would never film because I would be afraid to do that, like war stories. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could ever go into a war zone and, and film. I just, uh, I'm fearful of that. Yeah. You know? Is it just the environment of being in it or just what is it? Uh, probably being killed. No, I, don't <laughs> like... think I, I don't think I could ever be a war correspondent. And yeah, I don't he's think funny. I, I don't think I could ever jump out of an airplane with a parachute. You know, those are those are the things that I that I draw the line on. There has to be some. I mean, there's some people who clearly like to do that. I mean, I know. giving you, they live I mean, they they're like almost junkies for it. You sure. know, it's obviously I think it's a testament to the different types of personalities people have, what they're willing to do. Sure. I've read about war correspondents and many of them talk about the fact that it's such a high that mm. the adrenaline rush of being out there in the field filming war is something that uh, they have a hard time uh, stepping away from when they come back to a, a more civilized life. I mean, I can imagine. I mean, um, I actually had a good, my dad was in Desert Storm. He's a war oh. veteran. And I remember him leaving to go to that. And I remember six months later, him showing back up. And we didn't know whether he was alive or not. It was back in the 90s, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like it's not like you were having phone calls and video conferencing with your loved right. one. It's just, right. you just, I was at school. And one day they said, uh, your dad's unit's coming back. And we were in Germany. We were living in Germany at that time. Huh. And I just, I remember like it was yesterday. But I remember how strange it must have been for him to come back into this reality after being in another reality. Yes. Yes, totally. Um, I, uh, had a, I had a brother who passed away who was in Vietnam. And uh, one of my early memories was when two Marines showed up at our door to talk to my mom. Mm because he had been shot. And uh, I have that image seared in my memory of seeing those two men in their bright blue uniforms and yeah. white hats and gloves wanting to talk to my parents. And my brother came back and he was uh, really, really messed up. He had terrible PTSD and never really recovered from it. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's just the stories. My father would never tell us about anything that happened over there. He still hasn't. Right. And I just think it's just too severe. It's too much. Um, but there's thinking about this reality, it's kind of like, I wonder how you transition from the reality of shooting something to going back in between projects to not shooting something and just living your normal life. 
Good question. <laughs> um, you know, it all kind of feels the same because when I'm not filming, I'm developing something to do next or multiple projects to do next. Like right now, I, my film was just released this week. I don't have something I'm filming, but I'm developing two documentaries and a television show. And I've got three feature film screenplays that I'm shopping around. So, you know, you're just hoping that one of those projects is going to hit, but you're all, I'm always working on something, whether I'm filming, I'm writing, I'm developing, I'm making phone calls, I'm pitching. So it's kind of all the same. Interesting. I was thinking about it. My thought process was more of like, you know, especially in any profession, do you ever really turn it off? Is there this transition between the intensity of the environment, the, the work, and then the maybe the change in intensity when you're not doing that work, like in the game or filming the film or whatever session? You know, I always yeah. feel like for myself, I'm always on some level, there's some vibration of me in that element in yeah. some way, you know? Yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, when you're filming, it's such a uh, stressful and, um, and physical activity that when you're not filming, it's completely different. You're on, I find I'm, I'm on like a real high uh, energy level filming because I'm mm -hmm. concerned about how the day is going to go worried if we're in a dangerous situation that everybody's going to be okay. Uh, I'm concerned with quality of the interview. I'm hoping that we don't have any technical issues, you know, so all of that really generates a lot of uh, internal angst and, and worry and concern um, that you don't have when you're sitting at home in front of your laptop, writing a screenplay. <laughs> How do you, I'm curious about this. Well, a couple things. I mean, uh, when you're watching another documentary, is that difficult for you? Or is it like, it's just a movie to me or a show. Like, I don't look at it, the technical aspects of it. And is that hard? You know, for documentaries, I'm always thinking about the technical aspect of what I'm watching. And I'm always thinking, oh, you know, how, how did they get that shot? Or, wow, what a powerful interview. How did they film that? What does it look like? Uh, how are they telling the story? How's the music working underneath the, uh, the underscore? Oh, always thinking about that. I find that when I'm watching a narrative series or, or, or a film, I kind of usually get lost in, in the story and don't think much about, about the technical aspect of it. Yeah. Interesting. Unless something what do, yeah. jumps out at me and I see like an amazing shot or, you know, <laughs> you know, like the, I don't know if you've seen 1917, but just watching that whole yes. film is just mind blowing the way they it filmed is. it. It is. It is truly mind blowing yeah. for sure. What have you learned the most about yourself and your film career after doing all these, like how, how have you seen yourself grown or what have you learned? Patience. That's been like the main thing that I've learned over the last couple years. Uh, and uh, 
I've be I've been impatient with things in the past, and it's bit bit me in the butt. And I've re I've realized, thanks to my wife actually, who's pointed this out to me, that I need to take more time. I don't want to I don't want to rush through things anymore. I want to be patient, and um, I think that's been the the biggest thing that I've learned to take my time with things. Don't jump into it just because you want to get it done. Mm. Um, I've, I've edited films maybe too quickly because I wanted to get, get it done and move to the next project. Or I've started production a little too soon when maybe I needed to take another month to do some research, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah patience is, is really the big thing I've learned along this journey. No, it makes it makes a lot of sense. You're telling me this. I'm like, oh gosh, we sound like the same type of person. <laughs> I have been told that by my wife also, and a couple really wonderful mentors in my life. It's like you're producing good stuff, but like slow down a little bit. You know, don't just try to like you know attack mode all the time yeah. and get it done and just keep you know trying to conquer the planet. You know, type of thing. The so, other thing uh, I've learned. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. The other thing I've learned is is having mentors in your life. I yeah. kind of grew up with a pack of wolves, so I never really had a, a a true mentor in my life until recently, where I've actually been paying coaches, mm -hmm. and they've made a huge difference in the way I approach my work and my life. In what so, way? Uh, what are the different ways? Um. God. Uh, I guess it's uh, through the mentorship, through the coaching, you, you're guided not to make mistakes that you, maybe you might have made in the past. I guess that's the way I can say it in a very general way. Yeah. Uh, makes sense. One coach that I was working with uh, taught me a lot about manifesting what you want in life. That was important. Hmm. Is that something you were struggling with before or? It was just well, sort of a concept I never really thought about. Why do you, why didn't you think about it in, in your mind? What was the, it just wasn't there like in your just mind? It just wasn't there, yeah. Yeah. Where we, yeah, there is something about me psychically that when i when i manifest what i want it seems to happen hmm. and i never really understood that before until working with this one particular coach yeah which has been very interesting that's pretty cool i mean yeah you feel like you're it sounds like it's almost a story of how you're progressing as a in your human behavior over the yes. time you know you're chronicling the human behavior of these other people but in the same uh, essence you're you're doing the same <laughs> along with them you know yeah and that's part of my growth through the, my work with my mentorship uh growing into the to a person who is not afraid of failure which i used to be and i think that's what kind of 
hurt my career along along the ways being timid and uh being afraid that i'm not good enough you know yeah all those things you kind of work on when you're when you're working with a good coach and Certainly. i've been able to grow through all that kind of stuff i would imagine that comes through and your filmmaking experience and maybe how you approach it and you know as you i think again i music is kind of a conduit for me i always think about when somebody makes their first album you know and where they're at in their point in their life and how that sounds and the lyrics too when they're older and they're making albums and how that sounds and what point in their life they are you know i wonder if movies and filmmaking is similar as the kind of the the edge you have different based off of where you're at in your life and how it's produced yeah i would totally agree with you on that i you know, certainly, as you get older, you you make more mature choices. You realize how little time you have left on this planet mm-hmm. to to make to do the work that you really want to do, which is something that, um, thankfully, the support of my wife and and my coaches that I've in the last three years have just completely devoted all my energies into just becoming the filmmaker that I've always wanted to be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the last three, four years, all I've done is make films, write stuff, um, just concentrate on doing that. And, yeah. and it's, it's been very good. It's been very good for me. What kind of filmmaker do you want to be? I want to be Francis Ford Coppola. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be Marty Scorsese. Mm. Those are the those are my heroes. Uh, and why? Yeah, I, what are the, what is it about them? Oh man, they're the way they tell a story, the way they uh, capture an image, the way they find unique characters. Those are all things that that I that I am fascinated with when I watch their work. Um. And of course, there are, you know, another 10 filmmakers I could name, but, um, you know, my, what I'm working towards now is becoming a feature film director or a television director, producer. Those are the things that I've, those are my goals now. I love documentaries and I'm good at making them and I will continue to make them, but it's really not been my main focus, but I am, uh, taking this time during COVID to also develop documentaries because it may take me a while to be able to make the films, the feature films, the narrative films that I want to, that I want to direct and and write. So I may have to make a few more documentaries first. (laughs) Right. Do you think that, so the feature film jump is interesting. Um, What was the kind of motivation to move in that, that um, line of work and two are would the would would these be right to say they're more original stories or they're kind of uh, adaptations? Yeah, they're all original. Um, and and my motivation to wanting to work in that genre has has always been there. Documentaries for me has always sort of been the fallback position. <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah, I've always wanted to be, my dream has always been to be a Hollywood feature film director. That's, that's what I 
went to film school to be. I took a circuitous journey to where I am now. I went into editing. I became a sound editor for a good 15 years working in features and television uh, as a way of having a career, which speaks to what we were just talking about, the fact that I didn't really live up to my own expectations Mm -hmm. back in those days uh, of being a filmmaker. Um, So, yeah, being a a storyteller in in a narrative genre uh, is something I'm interested in. I, I uh, certainly know my limitations. I don't think that I would ever be like a guy who would direct a Star Wars because I'm just not that interested in that stuff. Yeah. I'm interested in telling small, intimate human stories. And those are the things that I'm writing now. Gotcha. That was, you beat me to the punch. That was my next thing <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I was like, oh, he got me on that one because I was thinking like, you don't seem like just from listening to that you're going to produce like a Michael Bay type of movie, you know, like it's these big blockbuster thrillers, superhero movie. No, Uh, I don't watch those. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's not my thing. (laughs) Not my thing. That's very interesting. I am, I'm a fan of all those types of things, but I, I find myself being very, pulled towards very cerebral filmmaking mm-hmm. um, like the matrix or yeah or like christopher nolan type movies yeah, you know he has sure. tenet coming out and all that and i'm really pumped about it because i feel like there's just so many original stories mm-hmm. it seems like and i feel like a lot of hollywood is just adaptations of books or um recreations of something and i love a good original story mm-hmm. about something that was just cleverly put together i think the first one i saw of his was memento yeah and i was like this is mind-blowing <laughs> it's like how did he think of this you know and yeah i love that this kind of very intelligent way of telling a story like you don't see what's coming yeah type of thing oh nothing better than that i kind of go in the opposite way where i find those sort of films are just a little bit too complicated for mm. me to to enjoy as an audience member i can See. i can uh uh enjoy the the technique and the storytelling but i'm not i don't enjoy the experience of watching those films where if you give me a tarantino movie <laughs> i'm totally enthralled because of the way he's able to to create uh incredible drama and and uh, fear and stress in 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 the way he he films his his scenes and and his creates these characters that are so unique, super and, unique. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love those too. <laughs> I'm kind of yeah. like a, I like I like everything. I just uh, it, I think for me is obviously I'm not a filmmaker, but I love the. I think about it in the sense of like, why did they do this? Like, right. how did this, how would you think about that? How did this idea come to fruition versus um, like, oh, I'm just escaping watching this, you know, like yeah. I just, I don't want to think about it. And uh, I think I've always been drawn towards very thoughtful, artsy things, but also 
I'll I'll be drawn to something like that's like a shoot 'em up, blow up stuff too, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. It just, but I I would say I more gravitate towards something that really makes me think, and uh, is emotional. I like things that are very emotional. As sure, well. sure. I just watched a really, really interesting documentary. Very powerful. Uh, it was just on PBS. Just premiered last week called Rewind, hmm. and it was made by. A colleague of mine's son, and uh, my my friend, my colleague is is actually the father of the son who's in the movie, mm-hmm. and it's about sexual childhood sexual abuse within a family. Oh wow! And it is heavy, and it's powerful, and it's really well made. And I'm pretty sure this film is going to get nominated. It's it's remarkable. It's that good, huh? Yeah, I gotta check it out. Yeah, it's on independent lens on PBS. Okay. You can watch it for free. I'll definitely check it out. I mean, it's, I love good recommendations for anything like that. I always think like, were you with, you said with filmmaking, did you watch a lot of movies growing up or were, is it like, because I know for me, like I was heavily influenced by my father who always took us to the movies and was like always a sci-fi movie or something. Ah, So like, I'm still like heavily into sci-fi. Yeah. Um, but it was like, it was because of that father-son thing. We get to the movie theaters 45 minutes before the movie. We would talk and we'd talk about the movie afterwards and the oh, whole thing. Were you? That's so cool. It was like a, and we still do it whenever I visit my dad. It's like, we always watch a sci-fi movie or something we watched when we were, when I was a kid that he had me watch and we would recite the lines together and stuff. Yeah. Well, I, before I answer that question, I wanted I wanted to tell you something earlier when you were talking about your dad and the mm-hmm. fact that he doesn't talk about his experiences. The film that I made uh, called Between Two Worlds, which is about that World War II fighter pilot, um, when we screened that movie to many people, went through a lot of film festivals, we would have uh, the children of veterans come up and say, I have to show this to my father because he's never talked about the war. Mm. And we would hear back saying, thank you so much for making this film because my father or my grandfather or my brother watched your movie and he started to tell us what he went through. Oh, cool. So I'll have to get you a copy of that for your dad. Thank you. You know what? That would be awesome. I definitely, it's something I want to know. It's just, I want to be respectful of his experience. Sure. You have to not, let them want to tell the story. Yeah. Because yeah. there's horrible things. You know, there's sure. things that are, I'm sure he's still processing in his yeah. life. And sure. I, sure. I, just because I'm his son, does it's not my right to know about these things yeah. in his life. And it's, it's, well, that's really cool, though, by the way, that that's the, I would think that's got to be rewarding for you that there's a, there's a larger landscape beyond this. Oh, that was the most rewarding thing of all to be able to impact other people's lives like that. Um, Just to tell a quick short story about how that film came about. Frederick Arnold, the subject of the movie went through world war II, came back with PTSD, but he never talked about it. And his kids never even knew he was a fighter pilot until he had a break a breakdown, sought treatment, and out of the treatment, the psychiatrist said, Fred, why don't you write these things down just as a personal memoir, a diary? 
and he started writing and eventually he realized he had a manuscript and he showed it to his children and that was how they learned they were grown adults at the time young adult and they learned about their father's experience and the hell he went through as a fighter pilot and um his daughter is an actor and she said well dad this is an incredible manuscript maybe we could publish it and he was able to publish this book and it was a big success and that's how he dealt with being able to tell his family but it took him a long time like 30 years to be able to to even admit that he was in the war they had no idea um but to get back to your question about my father my father like yours totally influenced me in becoming a filmmaker. He had no idea what he was doing, but I remember very clearly as a young kid, I don't know, maybe I was definitely under 10. He woke me up in the middle of the night and he said, Aaron, come down here. I want you to watch a movie with me. And he woke me up. We went downstairs and we watched the original King Kong from the thirties on television. And that was, that was like uh, point zero for me. Um, that started my interest in wanting to be a filmmaker, seeing that movie. And that was all due to my dad. Isn't that amazing? Um, these points, these kind of entry points into your yeah. life of turning you into the person or the uh, moving you towards something that you'll become. I always think it's fascinating. That's why I like movies because they're kind of these origin stories of people and how they become the person that they're maybe just some sense of destiny in a movie. You feel it, you know. And it's funny. I've heard other well-known filmmakers say the same thing that that movie huh. changed their life. Hong Kong. I mean, King Kong. King Kong. Yeah, the original. Really? One. What is it the about 30s. that movie? I don't know. It's just, it was, uh, you know, it was, a. I guess the fantasy Im images of it mm -hmm. that I remember the, the, the battles between King Kong and the dinosaurs and, and the fear and, you know, just everything. I just got totally immersed into that world when I watched the movie. That's amazing. It's actually makes me think of the first movie I went to see with my dad in the movie theaters was Top Gun. I oh, really? That. Oh, wow. The first one. And I remember literally like yesterday being there and my dad was so pumped up and my brother and I were, and we were like cheering and stuff in the movie theater. Wow. And I just like those moments, like you said, they're seared in your brain. Like there's some things I forget so easily about my life, but then there's so many moments that I'm like, that could have been two hours ago. Sure. Sure. We also had a small theater in our town and my mom would drop my brother, my younger brother and I off on Saturdays to the theater while she could go do her shopping. And we would watch these really bad, <laughs> cheap horror movies. And those made such an impact on, on me as well. Oh, that's funny. That's amazing stuff. Um, what's the, I know we talked a little bit about, you know, you know, f feature filmmaking and things, and, you know, you're working on a lot. And um, for the audience, you know, Aaron moved to LA not that long ago. So from Woodstock, right? Woodstock, Vermont? Woodstock, New York. New York, New York. Sorry. The most uh, the famous, most famous small town in America. That's right. That's right. 
And uh, where do you see your life heading? Like if just vision, you're envisioning where you want your film career to like, and what people will say about you once you've kind of really done the things you want to do, become the filmmaker you want to become. Well, I'm manifesting the rest of my life to be uh, probably here in Hollywood working uh, on films that I care about writing and directing and producing things. Um, I don't know if I think that far ahead other than that. And just, I know that I will never retire, that I will hopefully die on a film set in my eighties or nineties directing a film. I mean, that's, I'm already old. I mean, I'm going to be 60 soon. So I've got God willing another 20 or 30 years of work. And I just hope that those years are just completely filled with moving from one project to the next. That's awesome. I hope so too. I mean, it's honestly, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, like tremendous honor speaking. Oh, with you. thank you. It's been, it's been great having this experience. Uh, I think this is my first podcast that I've done with someone. Oh man. You know what? This is funny. I'm usually a lot of people's first podcast that they've done. <laughs> and uh, I try to make it memorable as possible. And it's just a conversation between two people. You know, I really identify with your take on human behavior. My whole podcast is about understanding human behavior. My mm-hmm. doctorate's about human behavior. Mm-hmm. It's just, I enjoy, I connect to that, I resonate with that. And if I could learn a little bit from, a variety of people in different walks of life, then I'm really, I'm growing myself. So thank you for helping me grow. Oh, thank you. This has been fun. Awesome. I could talk to you for another three hours. I tell you, it's too easy, man. It's way too easy. And, um, you know, my goal, and I really enjoy talking about this on the podcast is I don't have people on to just be like, Hey, well, that was fun. See you later. Maybe not, you know, like, I enjoy growing the relationships. So for me, I'm hopeful that Aaron, you and I can stay in touch and, and grow uh, a relationship and um, be supportive of each other. That would be lovely. And I hope when I eventually come up to Washington state (laughs) and drop in and we can have a cup of coffee together, that would be so much fun. That'd be great. Thank you so much, Aaron, for your time. And uh, we'll be in touch. Excellent. Thanks, Darian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone. You made it. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of this place where the kids aren't asking for the Wi-Fi. Mom, can we go to the pool? And when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of.